Hello and welcome to the Digital Works podcast, the podcast about digital stuff in the cultural sector. My name's Ash and in today's episode, episode four of Bytes, which is our regular short form series where we look at three interesting things from our most recent Digital Works newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter on our website, which you can find at thedigital.works. And joining me today, and for all episodes in this series, is the person who puts the Digital Works newsletter together, my colleague, Katie. Hi, Katie. Hello. So today we're going to talk about some of the things that were in the newsletter that you sent out on November the 10th, and I will put a link to that newsletter in the show notes. And the three things, actually four things, that we've picked this time are a collection of internet artifacts, which you sent me. A TechCrunch article on OpenAI's GPT store, which lets you build and monetize your own GPT. An article from Om Malik, who is a journalist, entrepreneur, and venture capitalist, which is titled, The Social Internet is Dead, Get Used to It. And lastly, we're going to look at an article in The Verge from Amanda Chicago Lewis, titled, The People Who Ruined the Internet. So a cheery and upbeat (laughs) episode awaits. It's all good. First up, you sent a message to me where you said, I sort of want to talk about this. And it is titled The Internet Artifacts. And it is a sort of navigable online museum i suppose a collection of Mm. digital artifacts that span from 1977 at the sort of birth of the internet through to today and there's loads of things in there there's the first spam email there's a reminder about friendster there's the, the first wikipedia homepage. there's the first tweet and for someone like me and i imagine for you as well who has been very engaged in the internet as it's evolved. It was quite a intriguing and interesting, but also nostalgic journey through 50 years of technology history. Mm. What did you enjoy being reminded of? Well, there's a few things which I'll flag in a second, but more generally, it makes you realize or it reminds you how fast things change and how things that then were like, oh, wow, that's so cool just now looks so old-fashioned, which is like self-evidently obvious, but I think it's also useful as a reminder of kind of how quickly things are going to carry on changing. So in terms of things I particularly liked, there was a, I don't want to call it project, there was a guy called Alex Chu, who in 2005, which isn't that long ago in terms of this particular little widgety thing because it goes like you say it goes about 50 years but he set up this thing called million dollar homepage and I actually sort of knew Alex Chu through friends of friends and it and it still it still amazes me that he did it so he sold basically a million pixels each pixel was a dollar the reason I think that's really fascinating is you just could not do that now for many 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 reasons And it sort of reminded me of, I guess, philosophically, what a different place the internet was, like, what, like, 18 years ago, and 
when we talk about the social internet is dead article obviously we'll come back to that as a kind of idea but there's just so much yeah there's so much nostalgia in there who doesn't love a bit of nostalgia right and i think it is also really interesting and telling to as you say look back at things from 10 years ago and they look archaic they look mm. almost like a joke that you think this was the homepage of you know the now one of the most valuable companies in the world and they thought this was good and i think it just underlines that thing that we've talked about before but the pace of change is not slowing down no and it's sort of something you have to get comfortable with i think if you're if you're deciding to build a career in this space and and this particular timeline does a really good job of just showing that from the late 70s the rate of progress has been steep and ever increasing and that's not to sort of try and sound alarmist because i think that so many people that work in digital roles are excited by change and are intrigued by change and are excited to see what comes next but this does a really good job of sort of compressing 50 years into a navigable interface and just demonstrating how far we've come 100 percent, yeah yeah i'm kind of interesting why you didn't go past 2007 but that's a question for another day Next up is an article in TechCrunch, which is titled App Store for AI, OpenAI's GPT Store lets you build and monetize your own GPT. And this is an article from a few weeks ago now. And since this article was published and since you sent out the last newsletter, there has been all sorts of shenanigans over at OpenAI. So maybe we'll touch on that a little bit. But Focusing first on this article, what's it telling us? What is this store that OpenAI have launched? So everybody will probably be familiar with ChatGBT, large language model AI tool that you can go to and ask it to do things for you. What they are talking about is, and it is confusing because they're calling them GPTs, but essentially they are custom versions of ChatGPT that you can create yourself and then they're well it's not an ambition because it's there but not everybody can access it yet they intend to have a store like the app store so you could create a chat gpt that helped people to make the best vegetarian chili in the world and then you could put that onto the app store and you could monetize it There's an article which I'll share in the next Digital Words from a developer called Simon Wilson who has written a really good post where he's basically created a bunch of them. And some of them are technical, you know, to do with coding, and some of them are just really silly. So like one of them, you can put in a photo and it takes the photo and it adds a walrus into the photo. Obviously, that is ridiculous, but it's just to demonstrate what you can do with it. So there's all sorts of potential, really interesting ways of using this i think and am i right in saying that one of the features that they're making available through this new structure is that when you're creating your own gpt you can train it on your own data sets so for example if you've got i don't know all the text messages in your phone you could feed that into it into one of these gpts and train it to text like you do 
And, you know, again, I think that opens up some really interesting possibilities. There have, I mean, almost immediately there were security implications and ethical implications. People mm-hmm. were able to access the data sets that these custom GPTs were trained on. People didn't always have the right to use these data sets in these ways. And it's mm. really interesting. You know, we, we just talked about the pace of change, but in this AI world, the pace of change is ludicrous. And it's, things are changing almost by the hour. Yeah. And the regulatory and sort of ethical frameworks around this stuff feels like it's it's lagging behind and i would sort of sound a note of caution if you're excited to get in and start having to play with some of these things is that norms and expectations are still very much emerging around this and i think you need to be sensible and thoughtful if you're going to be experimenting in this space yeah 100 percent. there's a really good thread in the museum's computer group tech email list about ai policies and guidelines again i can include that in the next digital words but you know organizations thinking about the ethics the legalities and the practicalities of staff using these sorts of tools yeah and uh, sort of more widely people like rachel coldercut uh, imploring the government to have a more thoughtful conversation around this and i saw recently rachel said the one area i would not ever deploy ai into is sort of decision making where context is vital and it's not a sort of binary or clear-cut thing she said such as you know safeguarding children such as asylum cases and then today i think i saw a uk british mp saying we're going to try and push ai into all of these decision-making processes and reduce the size of the civil service and it's just yeah it's an exciting time but also it's it is a scary time because technology is being embraced without anyone really being thoughtful about how it works or honest enough perhaps about its shortcomings and we'll just very briefly talk about the uh, soap opera around open ai at the moment <laughs> so i think it was over the weekend sam altman who was the ceo of open ai was was he fired or did he quit he was fired, he was he fired, was fired by the yeah. board for not being candid enough with them they said in a, in a very sort of mealy-mouthed statement. And this story is developing again by the hour. And Kara Swisher is quite a good journalist to follow if you want to be kept up to date on this. But what's going on with this, Katie? Summarise it for us. <laughs> Who knows? It's very, very strange. I mean, he's, he's one of the founders. He was apparently very, very well liked. And all the subsequent debacle over the weekend seemed to back that up. There was a huge open letter signed by lots of staff saying that they were all going to leave too. There was another guy called, I forget his first name, but some Brockman, who was previously on the board. I think he's like the president and he left as well. Subsequently, Microsoft, who are one of the big investors in OpenAI, have apparently got involved and have sort of calling for maybe some of the board to step down. Usually when a CEO leaves it's described in a way that is they are leaving to pursue other opportunities or to spend more time with their family but it was very odd on friday when he went because the statement that the board put out basically said that he hadn't been entirely candid in communications with them so obviously that was a fairly shocking thing to put out publicly but apparently yeah now it's all microsoft have got involved and there was at some point a suggestion that he might even 
come back, but I think that's gone by the wayside now. So who knows? The reason all this is important, by the way, isn't just because it's quite interesting from a gossip perspective, but this company is absolutely changing and will change the face of the internet. And so who runs it and the transparency of that and the governance around that is really, really critical. Yeah, because there is a version of this scenario where you could see it as good governance because OpenAI was set up as a nonprofit, was set up as as primarily a research-focused company looking at trying to achieve GAI, general artificial intelligence, they call it. And Sam Altman, you know, with the launch of this store and other initiatives he'd been on, he'd apparently been exploring a hardware device as well, very commercially focused in endeavors. And so there's a version that you could say, actually, this was the board removing a a CEO who was uh, sort of diverging from the mission of the company. But the way it's been handled is just a mess. Also, though, that's odd because Sam Altman was always the one who was not always the one. He was someone who who was lobbying for greater regulation around AI, for governments to take it seriously. So yeah, I'm sure it will all come out at some point. I'm sure there will be an Apple TV Plus starrily cast drama in the, in the works within 12 months. Yeah. Next up is an article that I came across as well a couple of weeks ago from Om Malik, who is a journalist, an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, and it's titled, Social Internet is Dead, Get Used to It. And I just want to read out an excerpt from it, and I'm keen to get your thoughts, Katie. He, sa- he says, the social internet began as a place to forge friendships, in quotation marks, and engage in social interactions, again, in quotation marks. It performed its role as intended until companies needed to generate profit. By then, we were all hooked on the likes, hearts, retweets, and followers, and the boost they gave to our egos. What is Om saying in this article? So I think he is is very neatly articulating the journey that social media has gone on from, let's say, 2005, 2006, 7 until now and how much it has changed. I don't think what he's saying in here is a new idea. I've seen it expressed elsewhere, but I think it is very well articulated that the fact that he is talking about how what social media was has changed to such an extent that really it no longer performs in the way that it was originally intended to, which is partially down to the business models that these companies have like meta and so on and i think i agree with him sadly yeah and it's it is interesting to sort of reflect because social media when it came along was a new form of it was it was a new articulation of network effects you know you built a social graph by proactively making friends with people and interacting with the things they said and shared and at scale that allowed technology companies to infer things about you and basically sell ads against your activity because you were sort of telling them what you were interested in. We've shifted, and we, we talked about this before, but we've shifted instead to a more algorithmically driven mm. experience where the user is not required to, 
do as much work, I suppose. The user is not required really to make connections, to make friends. The user is only required to engage with the content that is put in front of them. And then based on that engagement, the algorithm serves you up more content that it deduces you will be interested Mm. in to keep you engaged in that way. And again, it's a different way of selling ads to someone. And you are less reliant on the user building out that social graph for you to sort of be able to hang your ad tech off. And that is quite a pronounced shift in terms of what social media was and what it now is. I don't necessarily think this is going to be the status quo forever and ever. I could see a world in which we move back to a more social graph driven thing. I could also imagine a world in which there is another as yet (laughs) unformed sort of structural status quo that we, we end up in. And I think it's important for people listening to this to be mindful of of the fact that these sort of underlying assumptions and structures and dynamics that may be informing your strategy and you know the way that you spend advertising budgets is sort of a constantly changing thing yeah a hundred percent i think you know platforms like tiktok have proved that you can absolutely create an app that gets huge engagement and interest and really there's very little to know network graph in TikTok. It is deliberately built around content. Your For You page, where everybody lands, is entirely made up from algorithmic content. There's nothing to do with who you follow. And we all know how popular TikTok is. So yeah. And I think the other thing is, there's a kind of misnomer that younger people are like, oh yeah, they're all over social media. They are in a very specific way. And I do think that, that you know, much, you know, the sort of Gen Z age demographic are much more about using social media to engage with quite specific groups of people that's not to say they're not doing the performative stuff and all the rest of it but it's just shifting and changing so to your point absolutely I think if you're running social media accounts there's a risk that you are going to just stay on a treadmill of just posting stuff posting stuff posting stuff as your reach and engagement goes down and down so taking a step back and thinking about these things is really important and lastly we're going to look at an article in the verge titled the people who ruined the internet by amanda chicago lewis and it starts As the public begins to believe Google isn't as useful anymore, what happens to the cottage industry of search engine optimization experts who struck content oil and smeared it all over the web? Well, they find a new way to get rich and keep the party going. What's Amanda saying in this article? It's a long read. It's slightly snarky, quite funny. Within all of that, I think there were some real kernels of kind of interesting commentary about how Google in particular has changed how we all use the internet, you know, and and what that has then meant to industries like SEO. Ironically, and she sort of references this a little bit at the beginning, actually, the title is a little bit misleading, because in the end, the baddie in inverted commas in this, as she sort of supposes is Google is not really SEOs and the the analogy that she makes is you know there's a reason why in most countries public libraries are exactly that they're public institutions because if the management and distribution of information is controlled by a private business there's always going to be 
problems with that for many reasons, which she goes into. Side note, as an article, it is also quite staggering how much money a lot of these SEO people have made from it over the years, which just actually just underlines how search is just everything now, right? Like we just use it for everything. And so being on page one is still really, really critical. And it's only really AI that has even come close to, you know, knocking search off its perch in terms of as a source of information. Latterly, TikTok, for sure, but only in some demographics. Yeah, and I think it's difficult to underestimate or understate just how massive the impact of search has been on how we all think. You know, we used to be focused on retaining information, and now people are terrible at retaining information, but they're very good at locating it, finding it. And that's because Mm. of search. And I think as well, you know, this comes back to the point we were talking about earlier, the fact that we've allowed this sort of dominant technology to be entirely driven by private interests is, on reflection, perhaps not the most brilliant societal decision we allowed to take place. And it is interesting to see that the, you know, because a lot of this stuff comes out of Silicon Valley and out of America, which has a very stand back and let the clever technology people sort everything out and then maybe one day we'll put some laws around it approach to things but it does feel that with ai governments have recognized that that approach is maybe not the best one to take and there are some attempts i think you could judge them fairly harshly but there are some attempts to try and shut the stable door before the horse bolts on some of these technologies which are undoubtedly going to have transformative effect on how we find use and share information yeah i hope so i just i don't know the pessimist in me says that capitalism always wins out so we'll see i guess So thank you, Katie. That was another episode of Bytes. This is still a new thing, so we are very interested in hearing any feedback, comments, questions. You can find us on LinkedIn these days because Twitter X is just a no-go zone. It's interesting to watch how that perspective devolved over the last few months. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bytes. You can find all episodes of the podcast on our website at thedigital.works, where you can also find more information about our events and sign up to the newsletter. Our theme tune is Vienna Beat by Blue Dot Sessions. And last but not least, thanks to Mark Cotton for his editing support on this episode. See you again soon. Mm -hmm.